My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Welcome to the second in our series of four Fashion Revolution themed episodes. And this one is about the magical powers of the clothes swap. It's also, though, about us having way too many clothes. And some of it is just about the charmed life of Patrick Duffy, New York clothes swap king. I just read this story on fashionista.com that fashion resale is projected to be bigger than fast fashion within 10 years. Amazing. And this story was about a report that just come out from the resale site ThreadUp. And there's a few interesting findings in it. So it found that retail disruptors are growing 24 times faster than retail as a whole. So that's like Vestier Collective. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our episode with Fanny Moison from Vestier, I would recommend it. It's lovely. But yeah, these disrupting sites are really changing the game. That report also found that millennials are leading this as the most sustainably minded, but they're also the biggest impulse buyers. And they typically discard items after just one to five wears. And this story landed in the same week as another one that caught my attention. I'm not sure if you noticed the news piece about H&M sitting on a pile of unsold clothes that's worth a projected $4.3 billion dollars. What we're seeing here is a picture of excess. We have simply got too many clothes in our wardrobes and in production. Buy less, choose well is great. I mean, I say it all the time, but it's clearly not what everyone's doing. So now is the time to consider perhaps some more creative ways that we can tackle our clothing mountains and also our appetites for fashion. I mean, what if, like me, you just love getting new stuff? I haven't conquered that in myself at all. Even after all these months on this journey, I still love it. I still love getting the new fashion thing. What if, to borrow the phrase from Fashion Revolution, there were a whole alternative? Do you like how I said that? Do you know what a haul is? So if you're not familiar with that, the haul girls phenomenon is a YouTube thing where you go out to a fast fashion store and you just buy stacks and stacks and stacks of new stuff and you bring all your bags back to your bedroom and then you make a video as you unpack it all. Yes. So what is the haul alternative? 
I mean, there's obviously a few different ways, but today we're going to be looking at the swap. So the simplest way to extend the life of your clothing is by giving it a new owner. And the greenest way to get a mad fashion fix is to go to or hold a fashion swap. Now, Fashion Revolution Week is coming up. So if you want to make your own clothing swap, there's a toolkit that you can download from the Global Fashion Exchange. And the website's just globalfashionexchange.org forward slash toolkit. Our guest today is their co-founder, Patrick Duffy, who with his business partner, Brooke Blashill, runs this New York-based organisation that partners with ambassadors, venues big and small, and local swap organisations to run these epic clothing swaps. They're so much fun. And they've held them in some pretty impressive places. So at Lisbon Fashion Week, at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, at Melbourne's Federation Square, and there was one in New York's Madison Square Garden too. And Patrick talks a mile a minute, and he's had a very brilliant career. He's been a runway model at Milan Fashion Week, a personal trainer, a hip New York restaurateur, and a fashion lunatic. Actually, he's still a fashion lunatic. (laughs) Be warned, if you look him up on Instagram, you will find lots of pictures of him in not a lot of clothes. Anything for the cause. When I met him, he told me that this was his personal social media strategy. So ethical fashion, ethical fashion, grim fact about the environment, getting sad and bored, never mind, naked picture. (laughs) Ethical fashion, ethical fashion, more stats about water use, naked picture. (laughs) Do not try this at home. We have liftoff. (laughs) (laughs) Our shows this month have a theme. It's Fashion Revolution Week on the 23rd to the 29th of April. And on Saturday the 28th, if you're lucky enough to be in Melbourne, you can get yourself down to a major clothes swap event. That's a collaboration between Fashion Revolution, the Clothing Exchange, which is an Australian organisation, and we're going to hear a bit about that, and the Global Fashion Exchange, I'm saying it in my American voice, (laughs) which is co-run by Patrick Duffy, who is our guest. I should just say, if you're not in Melbourne, don't be sad because this episode is all about the power of the swap, why it works, how you can do it yourself, and just the all-around radness of guilt-free clothes shopping. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted. Me too. It's amazing. We have you here in Sydney. It's incredible. I love Sydney. It's a great city. And we met in New York. We met in New York when you descended on us and just came in and swept up. In and out. In and out. Like the burger joint. Amazing. (laughs) I'm going to start with something a little bit unusual. Okay. Because. I like unusual things. You were here this week to speak at Australia's very first circular fashion conference. I was, I was. And you gave a beautiful speech. And I thought that we might just get you to read out the first couple of paragraphs because it's really, really good context for the okay. conversation we're going to have. Perfect, perfect. Like a radio announcer. Like a radio announcer. <laughs> Go. Okay. I've been trying to figure out what I'm going to say on stage here today that's going to make a big impact. I was thinking of going into shocking facts and figures, like the life expectancy of cotton workers in India being 40 years, rivers turning the color of the current season because of textile dyes, water scarcity, human rights violations, greenhouse gases, or talk about the fact that there's more plastic in the oceans than fish. I'm just going to jump right into this and say it's a bloody freaking tragedy that for 200,000 years, we humans have lived on this planet within the Earth's capacity to regenerate itself. And since 1970, we've gone from one planet's worth of resources and its ability to absorb our waste to one and a half planets and we will soon hit three if we don't get our poop in a group, as my dad used to say. 
On a positive note, imagine for a moment if we were to shift all this, if we were to aspire to a productive, resource-efficient cycling of materials in systems that are made by us the same way that nature does, it would be incredible for everyone and the planet. Wow. It's a lot of pa-pow-pow, isn't it? Some of that stuff, it's really hard to get your head around and it's Mm -hmm. really hard to be motivated when you feel like overwhelmed by the enormity of the problems we face environmentally correct yeah but what i love about what you do with global fashion exchange is that it's about positivity it's about saying here's a solution we can okay we can't solve the plastic ocean problem this way we can't fix climate change in a minute Mm -hmm. but we can take steps and do some good stuff that makes us feel like empowered and good, which that's important. I wonder if you would like to just tell us what it is that you do with Global Fashion Exchange and how it harnesses the power of the positive. Yeah. Well, I'm somebody who does not, you know, seeing and ingesting negativity is a very difficult thing for me. And so I don't act in a way where I have a lot of positive outcomes that come from my negative, yeah. if that makes sense. Well, so it's like, not motivational. Yeah, you see negative things happening and you just kind of want to go into a hole and cry. <laughs> to, or that's what I want to do. So I think it's important to acknowledge these things that are there, like these atrocities. And I just happened to kind of stumble onto this concept of clothing swaps. And that's when I realized that like this is something that actually generates a good feeling just in the nature of swapping clothes with your friend. You know, you like, oh my gosh, you get something new and that generates a good feeling. And then I realized that it's not just that feeling that's amazing, but it can be used as a teaching tool. So okay. because when, you know, I have an experiential marketing background and what I learned through that was you want people to experience in order to remember, in order to engage, in order to continue, okay. right? So I take a lot of those principles and we put it into clothing swaps. So whether it's like consciously or unconsciously that people are learning things, mm. they are, you know, they're doing a clothing swap, but then you're there and there's educational tools that subliminal things like we'll put up facts like we get from Common Objective or from Fashion Revolution. So it starts to cue you. And the best example that I have of this is like my mother. Like I feel like I always run this stuff by my mom. <laughs> and like my mom, is an, my mom is an amazing, intelligent, well-read, well-traveled woman. I think to myself, well, would my mom like this? And what's actually quite interesting about this is like through this entire process, not only has she been a huge support of it, but she has learned so much about... Mm. Not just what I do, but what I'm doing. And it's amazing because she doesn't even hold clothing swaps. And in her own community in Edina, Minnesota, you know, she's now teaching people. In where? Edina, Minnesota. <laughs> everyone in ethical fashion from Minnesota. I know, I know. Actually, bizarre. Know. Sarah Ditchie Sarah is Ditty. coming up on this show. Know, she's amazing. She's, she's the amazing. head of policy at Fashion Revolution. Oh, and she comes from Minnesota. She's an amazing woman. Yeah. Minnesota breeds you lot. <laughs> Weird. And so getting back to... Global Fashion Exchange, what exactly is it? So you're based in New York and your business partner is Brooke Blashill. Correct, yeah. What is it that you guys do? What do you focus on and how do you operate? We're kind of like a traveling roadshow and we do clothing swap events. And basically what that means is like the event side of things, we set up shop in whatever town we're going to and whatever space that we have. So that could be Madison Square Garden, that could be here in Melbourne, we did the Federation Square, but we also do smaller venues. So we kind of do a call to action to a community, which is bring your clothing in order to do an exchange. And there's all of the educational components that are 
planted around it. So the whole thing is pretty much an exchange, an exchange of ideas, an exchange of clothing, an exchange of goodwill. I mean, I can't begin to describe, even when they're tiny, and when they're tiny to, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people, the feeling on a whole is the same, where Mm -hmm. people are just exhilarated. And it's like, it's a different type of exhilaration than shopping. It's a different type of exhilaration than finding that pair of shoes. I mean, that's kind of like hunt, kill, and that feeling doesn't really last, you know? This is like community building. Mm. This is, you get friends from it. You feel like you're doing something really positive for the world around you, even though it's just a clothes swap. It generates new ideas. And so, yeah, it's pretty inspiring because we have people that, come to these things that have never been to one. And as a matter of fact, sometimes you say clothing swap and there's like a negative connotation to it, you know, because of the word swap, I guess. But or they because co- it's old stuff. People yeah. Don't, people don't. Yeah, exactly. Do they still not like old stuff? I can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, old stuff is so beautiful. But I think, you know, we basically create a shopping area, like a shopping mecca. That's how we try to to do like a mini Bergdorf Goodman or something like that. We want people to associate the fact that swapping is actually a beautiful thing. And we want them to have a good experience with that. And so it's not just coming and finding a bunch of clothing on the floor and rummaging through it. Right. And so that took a lot of time to actually get through that as well. So So how exactly does it work? Mm -hmm. So if you come to one of your swaps, and we're going to get into how we can hold our own swaps, but if you go to a global fashion exchange event, how is it set up? What do you do? No money, right? No money. Well, so we started out as a no money concept. And when we do the big ones that are self-generated, meaning generated by our organization, but we've now started a second tier, which is, we call it our self-provisional toolkit. And what we realized is that these things, to put one on, they do cost money. Like there's things sometimes you need renting renting a space and tables. And so we recognize that. So when Brooke and I were doing these kind of the big traveling road show ones, like we would find sponsors to help us pay for these things yeah. set so we could keep it free because we didn't want people to be excluded. And how the free ones work is, yes, it's the clothing becomes the currency. And so what we looked at was we found a statistic that's about 30% of people's closets goes unused. So we looked at that number and we thought that's incredible that we can create a currency out of 30% of stuff that People here. So then we go to these ambassadors, and then the, we say to the ambassadors, can you please, you don't have to give us all 30%, but just give us a few things so we can then seed the swap with this. And then we do a clothing collection, so we call out to a community through social media or whatever, and we basically pre-populate a swap area, and we put things out on social media so people can say, oh, look, you know, Margiela Top just came in, or go TA Shoes. So it's kind of subtly shows people like, whoa, somebody's giving Gautier, somebody's giving this, somebody's giving that. So then the actual process when you ruck up is quite fun. So you put your clothing down on the table, and there's a what we would call a sorting expert, so somebody who works in the fashion industry who can understand the difference between high street and high fashion. Mm-hmm. And so then what we do is we separate the two. Into two lots. Into two lots. And so there's a high street and high fashion. And then we also, because we also educate on recycling, we do encourage people to bring the clothing for recycling because there's still a need to dispose of that. And then the recycling part is really fun because, um, you know, obviously they don't get a ticket to swap. So, but what we do do is we educate them on 
how they're closing the loop with that. And that's actually really interesting because people don't know anything about textile recycling. Consumers oh, don't. Well, I don't. Yeah. I mean, often in this role, I'm asked by listeners and readers, what can I do with my textiles? Right. And I struggle. I do a lot of research and try to find out. But there are some things where I reach a dead end and I don't know the answer. Yeah. We need more information about this. Yeah. Or where to you know, go or who's participating yeah. in it. Yeah, and yeah. what can we do with the stuff that really isn't saleable, that people don't want, that, mm-hmm. you know, grotty old, I don't know, socks, yeah. things that towels, really should towels, sheets. sheets. Yeah, yeah. You Cartons. don't want to put them in landfill, but often you feel like that's the only answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, you don't know. Like, for instance, I was just having a conversation last night with a friend of mine who's an interior designer, and I'm helping her basically figure out how she can be sustainable. So textiles applies to many different industries too, by the way. And so she was saying, oh, you know, she's here in Australia. Oh, dolls, I just don't know what to do with the curtains. I do. I need to shout out to this incredible designer. I'm such a fan of her work. Her name is Nessie Croft. Okay. She's in Melbourne and she's a a superstar of the future. And what she does is upcycle. In the beginnings, she was going to op shops and finding old curtains because they're awesome, like velvet curtains. Oh, my god! Waxed cloth curtains that you, you know, the wax cloth you get on the inside. Yeah, yeah. And And there's so much of it. epic tailoring from it. Wow. So we should connect Nessie Croft with your interior yeah. designer friend, which I love swapping content. Yes. And that's amazing. And and it's things like that, Claire, that happen at these events because, like, you get people that come and they they're just naturally wanting to meet each other and then there's more that comes away from it than just mm. a swapping, mm. a swapping clothes. Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. I want to get into this idea of the economic aspect of this like the whole framework we live in a hyper consumerist capitalist society Mm -hmm. in which profit is everything Mm -hmm. you can tell i've been writing this bit of my book this week (laughs) i've been investigating all of these things about what we might do with an economy that didn't have money is this possible could it happen i've been looking at freeganism and dumpster divers and all this stuff but just on the subject of bartering and swapping Mm -hmm. there is precedent Mm -hmm. I studied politics at uni, so I wrote this down because I remember it and I knew it would I knew it would come in handy <laughs> one day. This is the first time ever. <laughs> Seriously. I feel honored. <laughs> Honestly, all that time at university studying Adam Smith never ever said his name, but I'm saying it now. So Adam Smith was the eighteenth century Scottish economist and the author of Wealth of Nations, often called the Capitalist Bible. And he reckoned that we used to swap and barter, but that it was too inefficient, which is why we invented money. And some people do dispute this theory, I should say. But what he was saying was, if I had some strawberries to swap and you wanted strawberries, we'd both be happy. But if I had strawberries and you didn't want them, you wanted something else, puppies. <laughs> I don't think he uses these examples, but, but then we'd be up puppies, shit creek. <laughs> Give me your puppies. But he didn't use that phrase either. He called it the double coincidence of wants. Mm. So you needed both those things to line up if you were going to have an efficient swapping economy. Never happened, so we made money. But bartering is basically I give you this thing and then you give me a thing in return. So, Patrick, looking at that framework, is that how it has to work at clothes swaps? So, obviously, with your tokens, it is kind of bartering because it's like you give three things, you get three back. Mm -hmm. But does it have to work like that? If we're going to do swaps at home or out in the community that aren't connected to the big events, what if, how does it work? Do we have to get back what we give? (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. I don't think so. I think that really comes down to a personal value system and what and how you structure your value system. And so 
we structure it that way because it's a very easy thing for people to understand one-to-one. I think there's a really understood value Mm. to things. And that actually is a very interesting conversation because, like, let's say we have these Dior sunglasses here and then there's, like, three H&M tops in a Topshop shoe. So... I'll say, well, I've got these Dior glasses, which are, in my mind, I'm valuing at to a dollar, mm-hmm. like to a dollar amount. So we're kind of equaling that. And you say, well, I have six of these things. And if you add all of them up, they equal the value of that. So interesting. But then you kind of go down a hole because like, well, they're just a pair of sunglasses. Uh, take so the label off and what are they? Bingo. But yeah. I love this idea actually of true value and true cost because mm-hmm. it comes down to the very center of the ethical and sustainable fashion conversation, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I'm always saying this. When people say, but I don't have money to spend on the more beautifully produced thing, Mm -hmm. then I always say, well, you do if you're buying 10 of the really badly produced thing. Like it's just where do we find true value? If we take money out of the equation, if we take prestige out of it, I don't think we're ever going to take greed out of it, though, are we? No. I mean, that's a human no, because there impulse, are things, isn't it? How does it work? How can we well, do it? Well, there are things that are produced extremely beautifully, but they're just not recognized by our culture as that. What people don't understand about it is you're paying for the marketing. You're paying for the supermodel to be on the ad campaign. You're paying for the runway show. You're, you're not paying for the craftsmanship all the time. Like, sorry, guys, but that's just how it works, you know? So going back to the swapping part of it, it's an interesting question because I think there's something really good-natured that comes from it because I think most people that I know feel good to give. And when you're swapping, you're giving something. And it's not necessarily about the receiving. That's just kind of a bonus in a way. Also, when we talked about do you get back what you put in, Mm -hmm. I mean, what I thought, which is obviously a bit, Mm -hmm. but I like this stuff, is you do because of karma. Correct. I mean, I like that. Like the universe gives you back what you put into it. And it might not be in terms of material goods. It might just be like you being a decent person so people will appreciate it. The whole thing has been this really interesting philosophical study because I remember we did one in Madison Square Garden and the idea of doing a clothing swap too is like like you said, what you put into it means how much energy, time, everything. Like it's not just... You don't just, you know, kind of saunter into a swapping area like you do Dior. There's not people standing there waiting for you to try on the $5,000 garment girl. Like, you need to bring your stuff, but then you have to be ready to look and take part and jump in the game. The whole point is for people to come and explore and study and do all these things. You have to get into it. So we had this interesting thing happen at Madison Square Garden. We had great influencers and great people on board. And it was actually a partnership, I just want to say, with this incredible girl called Heidi Lindgren. And she created something called Impact Garden and turned the whole thing into a social impact event. She had like 12 or 13 different sustainable brands around the basketball court, Angela Linval gave a kundalini yoga class. Fantastic. And, then, and Global Fashion Exchange was one of the anchors of it. And so there's all these fashion people. And they arrived real late and they showed up with their Balenciaga and they dropped their Balenciaga and then they came over to me afterwards and they were disappointed because they didn't find something to match their Balenciaga. Well, why did I bring my Balenciaga if all that's left is this? Mm. And I said, I said, I don't think you fully understand the principles of this. And it was a very interesting conversation because they were looking at it through the framework of yeah. the dollar value of this and, and they weren't actually thinking about all of the other environmental things that were going on. So I had to do like a heart, like a quick one-on-one on the basketball court with this one. <laughs> but you've got, it's funny because it's, we have to unlearn everything we already know. Yeah. 
But what's also interesting on the flip side, like you have people that come and there, there's a bit of pandemonium, you know, to it. And like, we then had to come up with a no hoarding. Rule. Oh, like at a market store. I used to yeah. do market stores. <laughs> My friend, Melissa Boyle and I, who at that time was the fashion director of GQ magazine, we used to do these market stalls. It was fun. We did it often. Mm-hmm. They're fun. Um, we yeah. had too many clothes and we would do them at Roselle Markets in Sydney. And then we would just stand back and marvel at how people behaved because we had some good stuff. You know, we were shopaholics. Yeah, yeah. And we would put things, well, we wouldn't even get them out. We'd be getting things out of bags and, and there'd be strange ladies grabbing the bags and digging through them before we'd got things out. We'd be slapping their hands away. Stop it, stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but people really get hectic when they think there's a bargain, when they smell a bargain. Also, when they see something that's free that has a label on well, it. Free like, is the ultimate George, bargain. Yeah, or Georgia. I mean, I mean, like, I had... UN ambassadors fighting over Giorgio Armani at the, at the, at the um, swap at Madison Square Garden, which I was laughing about because I went to go meet one of them two days later and she had every single thing on that she got at the swap. And I was like, I love that you're <laughs> putting all this on at once. You know, it's like you are really getting that value, girl. But the thing is, how do we then, I mean, okay, what's your view having worked in this space for a while about how much the sustainability message is getting out? Does it matter if we miss a few as long as some people take on this idea that this is about closing the loop on resources, it's about deflecting textiles from landfill? If we get that message across to a few, maybe it doesn't matter if some people are just like in it for the bargain. <laughs> well, I mean, there, but the thing is, is you can still be in it for the bug, but I think you still get the messaging. Like, I mean, you get the fashion fever, of course. I mean, you see a free Versace blouse. Anyway, listen it, to me. I'm not a Puritan. I yeah, love totally. the fashion Yeah, totally. Of course. Why not? Like, I mean, if I see a Versace blouse at a clothing will, swap that's I free, I will run over you. there and be like, stand back. You know what I mean? <laughs> But the thing is, then that piece of clothing becomes a message because how many times have you been at a party and you're like, hey, doll, that's hot. Where'd you get it? You know, I got it at this. Well, what's the, oh my, and so then that's how messaging gets put out about it. Okay, so how popular are clothing swaps in general? So are you seeing a big upswing in people getting interested in this idea? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like this theory. If you drive a white Volkswagen... Then all if I was driving a blue Buick. Oh, then you see that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm driving a blue Buick. I don't notice white Volkswagens, but all of a sudden I get that cute white Volkswagen Cabriolet, and like there they all are. I, so I love that you come up with a car because my brain always goes when you think you're pregnant, everyone's pregnant. <laughs> like on the telly, everyone's pregnant. <laughs> Just everywhere. It's the same thing. Uh-huh. Pregnancy cars. Right. Thing. You can so get now you're seeing cars, the swaps so. <laughs> everywhere you look. Well, they. They were already there. And so when we started this in 2013, social media also was in a completely different place. Like Instagram wasn't as powerful, Facebook. So now in 2018, these tools that we have to communicate are so much more streamlined and easy. Like you put in hashtag clothing swap and all the clothing swaps from all over the world pop up. So we can go now and I can communicate in one afternoon with swaps in Hong Kong, Bangladesh, and say, hey, what are you doing? And again, a swap, an exchange of ideas. Awesome. So, so they are they were there, but what's interesting is I think now they are starting to pop up more because the economy is in a really crazy place all over the world. People, I think, in America are a little bit more sheepish about spending money, but the, the heat for fashion is still there. When the economy feels a bit gloomy, people still want to get their fashion fixed. Mm-hmm. 
I suppose the elephant in the room on this question, and maybe it's just never going to happen, so never mind, but what happens if we all only swap? I mean, what would happen to the economy? And for both of us working in fashion, how mm. does this conversation sit with that? Because I'm sure that retailers may well be listening, going, really? Because our bread and butter is selling good fashion. Yeah. Do you see swapping as a kind of very small niche that's not going to rock the economy? No, I or don't do think so. Or do you think so. maybe we could reshape the whole future of how we do business? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like, I think it's a very disruptive concept. I mean, when I first came up with it and wanted to go to these brands, they were laughing at me, like literally doors slamming in my face. But at the same time, I knew I knew in my mind that they only are, what's that saying? You see the, they don't see the forest through the trees, that saying? And I was like, it's just a matter of time. So are you actually partnering with brands? We're starting to really explore that, yeah. And many have actually come to us, not just on the side of partnering with them, but also in the consultancy side, because we have now amassed so much education in the five years of doing this. Like we've kind of took a deep dive into sustainability and, and the ethics of everything. And we've learned so much and partnered with Ethical Fashion Forum and Brooklyn Design Accelerator and... Queen of Raw, who is a textile supplier for um, in the United States that gives end of role. She especially is on the end of role with designers like Oscar de la Renta and blah, blah, blah. So she takes the... Queen of Raw. Queen I've of never Raw. heard of She's, that. I know about Fab Scrap. Fab Scrap, Jessica. Awesome. Yeah. So like what's interesting is since we started this, we were kind of, again, and all of these other organizations were out there too. But what we've kind of become is somebody who... We promote all of these ideas. And so Global Fashion Exchange has turned into this fun, cool thing where we're proud to talk about somebody else's accomplishments, where a lot of organizations are very insular. And so where we found a lot of success is that it's really not about GFX. It's about the people that we put forward through GFX. Back to the karma. Yeah, yeah, the really. the universe looking after you. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, like, you know, right now, it's a very small team, and it's starting to grow. We've So Brooke and I do this in New York. We have um, uh, somebody that works with us in, in the U.K. She heads up all of our U.K. development, Sharni Magri, who's incredible. But then we have all these interested parties around the world. And so... Let's talk about yeah. one of those. Um, yeah. That is Australia's Kate Luckin. She's yeah, based in yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can She's, you tell us about what she does? Well, we met through the power of social media, which is amazing. She So I reached out to her two years ago and ended up coming here to meet her. And um, she had a very well-developed clothes-swapping organization, far more developed than what we had with Global Fashion Exchange. Called the Clothing Exchange. The clo- called the Clothing Exchange. And she has been doing that here for, I think, 10 or 12 years, quite a while, but she's been doing it in Hobart, in Adelaide, in Sydney, in Melbourne. And she's done so many wonderful things with it, not just public clothing swaps, but she's gone to um, corporations and done clothing swaps inside the company to do like team building exercises, which, you know, for huge corporations of a thousand people, it's a fun and easy Mm -hmm. thing to do. So she's really taught me so much about all of the other ways that we can use clothes swapping, not just environmentally but socially as well and so um she powers these things with her incredible team of ambassadors and swap hosts and she also has a her husband has a design company called bureau and they have designed everything that like flat pack hangers and racks and basically everything is like reused and reused and reused and reused so like you're never generating garbage from these events and they're just it's kind of like Mm -hmm. you know call kate she shows up with the team 
and we collaborate. And that's it's the most amazing collaboration, one of the most amazing collaborations we've had so far, yeah. Okay, if listeners are thinking, I want to get involved with Swap Land, but maybe they want to do it themselves, like at yeah. home with friends or as an event, which I think is cool, like a way yeah. to challenge, I don't know, the idea that, as we were talking before, that getting involved in the big questions around sustainability has to be a downer. Mm-hmm. Like, have a party, make it fun. Yeah. So what tips would you share? If For, you had to come out with, I don't know, three snappy tips, how would people maybe begin? Well, we have a toolkit, which is easy. So the toolkit we developed for our partnership with Fashion Revolution, but it's actually anybody can do it. So the toolkit is globalfashionexchange.org backslash toolkit. And it's really kind of the, idi- the kind of idiot's guide. I mean, like, I get it. So it's like the idiot's guide <laughs> to how to swap. <laughs> I mean, I wrote it, so it's like I had to make it like that. But um, it's everything down to how many racks you need, mirrors. Like, So the tip is, I would say start small with people. Start with the immediate circle of people around you. And bring make, wine. And bring wine <laughs> and make it fun and have a good time. And like that's the thing is like you want to have a good time because that is what you're going to remember when you're telling your friends about it and you're promoting that message. So I guess the one big tip is to download the toolkit and take yeah. a look at it and then start small and, and have fun. Those are three, yeah. Love. Yeah, yeah. Patrick, you keep talking about experiential marketing, sure. which is all well and good, but Sorry. I know that you were Judy Garland on stage. <laughs> <laughs> that was an experience. Come on. That was some kind of marketing. How? And I just want to know about what brought Patrick out of Minnesota and into the Jane Street Hotel. Well, okay, let's see. Judy Garland was not in my life. Then, but, um, you know, I grew up in Minnesota and I was always kind of bullied and thrown into lockers and da da da. And, but the one thing that I did have for what loving musical theater? No, I mean, I was like a kind of a portly child and I kind of had a Dorothy Hamill haircut. (laughs) What is a Dorothy Hamill haircut? (laughs) This kind of like Like a bowl, this kind of like flock of seagulls bowl haircut. I mean, I thought it was the hottest thing since sliced bread, but nobody else really did. And then also I was obviously gay. Like I came out wearing heels. Like it was just that my family was really, really warm and welcoming and loving to me. Like there was never any issues with my family. They were so great. But it was always the... God, kids can be cruel. They can be. Like, even now, I'm like, what? But it was my peer group that did that. And then also my father actually, you know, full transparency. My father got HIV in the in the early 80s, but he got it through, no. got it through a blood transfusion because he had hemophilia. No. So there was all of that happening at that time. So it was the AIDS crisis, and I was gay in my family, and being bullied, and da-da-da. And the, one of the things that I had to kind of help entertain me was public television, <laughs> which I still love. We didn't really have cable growing up. We always had to go to the neighbors to do that. So on public television, as you know, they've got amazing programming. And so I would watch like incredible programs about like Jean-Michel Basquiat and Downtown 81 and, you know, artists in loft culture in New York City. So I quickly beat Grace Jones and Truman Capote and Andy Warhol. So I became super you know, fascinated with that. It's usually books or the cinema that people say educated them on those particular mm-hmm. things. Yeah. I don't know if we did have that sort of great programming on just regular telly in Australia. Well, I think we might not have. Because that's quite lovely, isn't it? The idea that you can be wide-eyed looking into another world and find out about art and about all kinds of serious stuff, not just chat shows or Correct. quiz shows I on mean, the they, telly. I mean, they were there, but, like, 
my mom was always watching like Masterpiece Theater or something like, you know, it was never, it wasn't really about that. And, and all those old films as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how I got to New York was I always then idolized that. I wanted to be Grace Jones. I wanted to be, you know, one of these like New York City characters that was creative and cool and free and like didn't have to, I just really wanted to get out, bust out of there. So when I was 17, around there, I actually got picked up on a modeling contract um, when I was going to go to college. From Minnesota? <laughs> Uh, from Minnesota, I was walking in a, in the the mall with my mom downtown Minneapolis, and somebody had stopped me, and I was kind of like gangly and re- not was, portly anymore. No, I kind How of. How tall are you? About six three. Right. Yeah. Did so, you think that you were gorgeous then? I should say that Patrick's very very gorgeous. Thank you. But thank did you. you think at that time that you were, or did you still very feel very insecure, insecure? Super insecure, and I that actually came from the fashion industry because I was always flipping through magazines, you know, wanting to look like Cindy Crawford. <laughs> it just was never going to happen. So when someone scouted you, were you Somebody scouted... Well, so, okay, so this came at a very interesting time. So my mom and I were walking in downtown, and somebody had scouted me. He's like, hey, you know, we've got this new agency called Vision, and we're, we're looking for models that are not tall, blonde, Minnesota. We're looking for ethnic models. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, not really ethnic. But anyways, he said, let's snap some Polaroids and we'll fax something to Milan because they didn't, you know, they didn't have email yet. Basically, that's how old I am. And so we'll send a package to Milan. So basically, at that time, I was supposed to go to college. And instead of choosing college, miraculously, I got picked up on a contract in Europe. And So, so did you go to Milan? I did. At 17? I did. And it was a very, I have to say, I'm so happy that I did because the, I didn't have the best grades in school. Like I was D for Duffy was like my big, <laughs> we have, you know, D's not such a great thing. Anyways, so um, I didn't have a lot of choices. I chose the fashion industry, which kind of in a way opened my eyes a lot more going from Minnesota to... You must have been gobsmacking m- to end up in Milan. It was, Did yeah. you speak any Italian? N- no, zero. Niente. Niente. So, no. And so that and was... what did you do when you got there? Who did you work for? Were you doing... Um, I was working in a catwalk because I was like six foot three and 102 pounds. And I did some, you know, Romeo Gigli, I think was one of the biggest ones that I ever walked for. And, um, and then I actually discovered that I didn't really so much want to be on that side of the fashion industry anymore. And I really wanted to use it as a tool for traveling. So then I became a very poor model because I just became very social. <laughs> I realized that I'm a social creature. And when did you end up back in New York? After that, I moved to Thailand for a short stint because I had to defect from the fashion industry and decompress. And I did that for a little while. And then that's when I kind of, that song from What's His Name, um, You Can Make It Here, You Can Make It Anywhere. Would you like to sing it? Go on, um, just two lines. It's uh, it's up to you, New York. Who is that? God, I can't. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. How can I give that reference it's and not just, know his name? Just God of Song. I know. <laughs> I'm just more interested in Judy. Yeah, that's exactly right. More interested in Judy. So then I get to to New York City, and um, that led me because of my limited resources and my you know limited funds and limited limited. I had to end up at the glamorous Jane Street Hotel, which was a bit of a derelict situation. $18 a night, I believe, $18 a night, yeah. And when you were sitting on the sidewalk feeling a little (laughs) glum about the dimness of your accommodation, who did you happen to sit next to? I had to do laundry one day because they obviously didn't have laundry facilities at this glamorous hotel. So I walked up the street on Greenwich Avenue, and this is 2000 one around there. I can't remember the exact time. And so there was a laundromat, and there was a little juice bar, 
and there was a beautiful man sitting on the bench and he was wearing all white like an angel pristine boot cut gucci the tom ford for gucci bit um thong shoes and the big gucci shields and a big gucci hobo and he was just glistening with jojoba oil and just glamorously sitting there and i um at the time was teaching aerobics so that was my source of income you know so i was on the on the cell phone with my mom talking about how great my first aerobics class was with, with nobody came and how depressing the whole thing was and i'm sitting there talking about it. i get off the phone and um this gentleman looks over at me and he says is your name patrick and i was like yes and he says do you teach yoga and live upstairs and i say <laughs> no <laughs> i don't i teach aerobics, aeroboxing, and I live at the Jane Street Hotel, <laughs> which then started this conversation, which was one of the most hilarious conversations of my life. And people kept coming by and stopping and talking to him. And he was obviously somebody of note. And I mean, just kept interrupting. And he's like, hey, dog, thank you. We love your show. You're so amazing. So, And so it finally occurred to me that this was somebody that I was talking to. And then I said to him, you know, I'm so sorry, like, are you somebody famous? And, and he whips off his glasses and gives me this look, and he goes, Honey, I'm America's favorite drag queen, RuPaul. <laughs> and the rest is history. It was the most life-changing moment. that At that moment in New York City had changed my life, changed my outlook, gave me confidence. I mean, everything that happened after that was, it was incredible. Plus, didn't so. you get to go and root through the Versace hordes? No, well, what ended up happening was... Um, Rue was so wonderful. He ended up having me back to his beautiful home. And he kind of gave me my first taste of his New York. And so what he explained to me, he had this beautiful penthouse that overlooked the pier. I think it was 10th or 12th Street around there. And he basically walked me through. That's where he used to live, was on that pier. And now the reason why he has this beautiful home is because he worked his ass off for it. And he's here and every day he's reminded of that. And so that was a really inspiring takeaway from me. So you opened a restaurant? Yeah. Well, um, yes, I did. And this this restaurant actually was an ex a social experiment that was based on this architect called Gordon Mataclark that had a restaurant in Soho called Food in the 1970s. And this was, you know, it's so funny, Claire, that you asked that because this actually has to do a lot with swapping and the exchange of goods in that system. So basically... He had all of these artists build this restaurant, like you know, and they, he put all the fiscal costs of the restaurant on the board when you came in. So you actually got to see how much things cost. So like, from lighting to nails to toilet paper to fish to mac and cheese to so you got to see like what the costs were to operate a restaurant. So he really the idea of transparency was in this restaurant. And he had basically artists working there and populating it. And something that I came up with for my restaurant was called by artist for artist. So I took Gordon's concept because it was very inspiring to me and I had all of these artist friends of mine that were in a dire situation because in 2008 the financial collapse happened and all of these artists were living in this building and studio on 21st Street and what ended up happening was I got to know all of them very, very well and um, kind of came up with this idea of buy artists for artists to put it in a restaurant as a way to kind of like help promote their work and help them do what they're doing and so everything in the restaurant was done in a way that was like, we used this artist to build the bar and this one gave us his lights and this one gave us something. And then we actually sold the work, the stuff. So that it's was like a, a gallery as well. Yeah, it was a gallery. And it was right on the corner of 
the West Side Highway was called BES Boutique Eat Shop, which was kind of the whole concept all put into one. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, and actually, that's where I met Rufus Wainwright, who is one of the most unbelievable people on the planet. And we became friends, and I exercise a lot, and Rufus likes to exercise. So and it ended up, ended up that we ended up exercising together a lot, and then he ended up asking me to go on tour with him. And it was the most incredible experience. But hang on, you weren't a singer. No, 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 not or at all. Or a performer. No, 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 no. I mean, you're a module. No, 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 no. So, no, 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 not at all. So he asked me to go on tour as his personal trainer with him. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so... So I went on tour with Rufus as his personal trainer. And then as a supplement, he was like, guess what? You're going to be Judy Garland in my show. And I was like, okay. okay. So that's... I love this conversation. It's just gone from sustainability to the environment to... Sequence. Sequence. <laughs> but one thing, if I had to pull out one thread from this and say, this is like the overarching theme of it mm -hmm. it's not swapping it's about collaboration Correct. it's about yeah. working with other people to make what you want to happen happen yeah let's finish by just talking about that about the power of collaboration yeah it's a very powerful tool claire it's like we all have such incredible abilities to do stuff and we all have the power to choose to do things and i think The great thing about collaboration is when we can come together and take the most powerful tools that we have and come together and use them. But what's interesting is that choice. And if we don't choose to come together and collaborate and use our the best resources, our knowledge, our history, all the things that we've talked about today, there's really going to be no future if we don't act now. Because it just isn't going to work for us anymore to stay siloed or to stay in our own environments because... It clearly hasn't been working and has brought us to a completely disastrous place now, <laughs> if that makes sense. So for but me, the future is together. It has to be. I mean, it, it sounds so banal, but actually that is what it is. It, it has to be. Really, it really has to be about that, doesn't it? About working together and changing, mm -hmm. changing the way we've done things in the past. We can change. We're mm -hmm. good at change. Humans adapt. Let's try. Well, there's an, in yeah, I mean, there's an interesting, like, Native American proverb that's basically... Basically, we are all one. And, you know, you read so many self-help books, you see so many memes, and you see people spouting this out, like, you know, tattooed on whoever. But I'm wondering, do people actually really know what that means? Because how we're operating as a society now does not reflect that quote or does not reflect that proverb or whatever that is. And so I think that we have to take a hard look. And, like, now, like, we can't wait anymore. We can't... What I was saying yesterday is like these incremental steps and being pleased with that. Like, oh, look, you know, we're now talking about how we're going to be more this. And it's a move in the right direction. That's great. That's admirable. But we only have 60 cycles left of soil on the planet. Our water is drying up. And so the only way is to come together and collaborate. So that's just how I see it. Love. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Love you. Thank you for having me. It's I'm been delighted. It's been exhilarating. Oh. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is always of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.